Hello and welcome to the June 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Um, before we go any further, if you're listening in iTunes, if you can take a moment, moment to give us some stars, it would help us. Um, it would help us immensely if you're enjoying the podcast because we're we have hundreds of listeners all across the world, but we really want thousands, and you can be a part of helping us do that. So. The one, the person making this plea is myself, Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. We need a shorter tagline. That's a mouthful, Art. You can rewrite it. I guess so. And I have to warn our listeners, Art's a little tired today. He's normally filled with energy, so I'm hoping that somehow the discussion of these legal developments, because uh, that's the kind of thing that gets Art going, will we'll, we'll wake him up. Is that fair, Art? I will be as awake as possible. Okay. I do want to segue, before we get into the main stories and what we're talking about, um, and Art, we, we didn't even correspond about this at all, but um, you know, we're sitting here in another June Pride together, um, on the cusp, seemingly, of more momentous developments, or for better or for worse, but so far, many of the developments have been positive. But I'm also struck by we're sitting here in New York City and we're doing that at a time where there's been a wave of uh, anti-gay violence. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm losing track of the numbers. I mean, last time I've seen reports from organizations like the Anti-Violence Project and others we're talking about, we're getting now closer to 11, 12, 13, 14 attacks in the span of six weeks or whatever the case may be. And I guess I was wondering what you make of that and whether this is just purely you know, random and sort of an unfortunate occurrence that goes on or – there's a larger story to be told about why this is all happening while there's so many other developments that seem to be positive for, for our community. Well, it, it may be partially a response to more LGBT visibility on the streets in New York and people are more open and uh, so uh, that is more provocative to people who are anti-gay. But it may also be uh, a response to some of the rhetoric, some of the pretty hot anti-gay rhetoric that uh, the current wave of marriage litigation and, and legislative developments has uh, inspired on certain right-wing uh, opponents. You know, some, some of the uh, rhetoric has been fiercely anti-gay. And, yeah, and it does and seem like they whip people up. In some of these instances, it seems like people are really – some of these assailants are really on a mission before they set out on the street to sort of find gay people to, to commit some of these attacks. Although there's always been some of that. It just seems more visible right now. Some of it may also be that mainstream media is doing more reporting of it. Which is a positive thing at the end of the day to, yeah. to have the news about it. But one last thing I'd ask is, is, is there something to be said from a legal perspective about th these these events, meaning, you know, we just had, you know, not long ago Supreme Court arguments where I think some of the justices were rather glib about the question of how politically powerful uh, you know, our community is. And, you know, against the backdrop of, and New York City is not alone in this, of, of, of violence committed against members of our community about lack of protections from our jobs in most places and things like that. I mean, isn't that part of the story of why the sort of the theory of our political powerfulness is just a little bit ridiculous at some level? Well, I, I suppose you can make that argument, but violence against women is an endemic problem in our society. I mean, you, you look at uh, the recent publicity to the epidemic of rapes in the military. Uh, and I don't think anyone would argue that women lack political power these days. But on the other hand, political power isn't everything in terms of protecting your your uh, your person, not just your legal rights, but protecting yourself in our society. 
I think that's well said, and thanks for sharing that. So let's uh, let's jump into the. Uh, we're going to briefly touch on the lead story, uh, which is different for us, but it, we're going to briefly do it because it's some marriage equality developments that I think m- many of you have heard about. But Art's going to sort of quickly run through them because we have a strong suspicion that in July we will be speaking about some more marriage related developments, assuming the Supreme Court does what it usually does, which is issue a decision in these cases uh, before the end of the term. So Art, why don't you why don't you lead us through that? Well, I just thought we should mention quickly that uh, France and Europe. Uruguay uh, became same-sex marriage jurisdictions, uh, although Uruguay won't go into effect until probably August. But France went into effect almost immediately, the first same-sex marriage in France on May 29th. Uh, that in Brazil, the National Council of Justice, which is a body that regulates uh, justices of the peace and uh, sort of regulates the judicial system, uh, issued a ruling that same-sex couples are entitled to get marriage licenses. Now, that was immediately appealed by the conservative political party to the state's uh, constitutional court, but the chief justice of the constitutional court is also the chair of this judicial council, and the judicial council vote was reported as 14 to 1. So it seems that Brazil is going to be a same-sex marriage jurisdiction. Uh, One event that postdates this issue of Lonos, but we might as well mention it because it will get lost in the shuffle, by, by next month is that the House of Lords in England, uh, defying most of the pundits' predictions, voted overwhelmingly against blocking the same-sex marriage bill, which had been passed by the House of Commons. So the prognostication there is that the enactment of same-sex marriage in the UK is inevitable, probably to go in effect next summer of 2014. On the U.S. Uh, developments, Delaware and Minnesota became marriage equality states in May, Uh, both of them by legislation, and in both cases the governor signed it into law promptly after passage on the front steps of the Capitol in almost (laughs) identical ceremonies. That's great. really interesting. And we had a disappointment in Illinois right at the end of the month. Uh, The state senate had passed the marriage equality law. Uh, The chief sponsor in the uh, House, uh, Representative Greg Harris, said he would not bring it up for a vote unless he thought he had a solid 60 votes which were needed for passage, and at the very last minute, the, like the 11th hour practically on uh, f- on Friday afternoon. I know it was a Friday because you were emailing yes. me. <laughs> and we were right on deadline for the June issue. On May 31st, he said uh, he couldn't bring it to a vote. Uh, so he said, we'll be back in November, although I understand that there's a possibility of a special session in the summer uh, because of several issues that the legislature just punted on that really need to be resolved, so the governor may call them back. So there's a possibility there'll be a vote before November, uh, but Illinois is uncertain. But on on final mention on, on the marriage point, uh, we have about 30 states where we have state constitutional amendments banning same-sex marriage, which means barring an incredibly broad positive decision from the U.S. Supreme Court later the, in June, uh, we've got to fight to repeal those amendments in order to get marriage equality in these states. And Nevada has taken the first step on that. Uh, we've got votes from both houses of the legislature. That's just, that just seems to put such an amazing development in such a short period of time. And there, there is a group at work in Ohio, a coalition, that's thinking about putting a measure on the ballot in Ohio to try to repeal their 
uh, anti-gay marriage amendment. So those are the marriage developments of May. It's you know we could have spent a long time talking about the details of each, but I thought it was good to just get through quickly. Yeah, and you've done a good job at it as always, Art. So let's uh, let's move into what we'll call our lead legal case then uh, of, of this month's podcast. Um, we've got some news about some courts in Florida struggling with a with a question whether sexual intercourse, as the term is used in a Florida statute, which we'll discuss, includes anal or oral intercourse between men. Um, this is the case of the state of Florida versus D.C., uh, not the District of Columbia. It's uh, actually initials for an individual who's, who's not named for reasons you'll probably understand. The statute, statute in question makes it a crime for a person who knows he or she is infected with HIV to engage in sexual intercourse with another person without disclosing this fact. And the second and fifth Florida District Courts of Appeals disagree on the proper interpretation of that. And um, Art, I was wondering if you can, before we dive further into the details of the case, can you give us a little bit of background about these HIV transmission criminalization statutes and whether on balance they actually prove effective at all in reducing the rates of, of HIV? Well, th- this is a matter of intense debate and very little uh, very little statistical evidence that I'm aware of. Uh, one of the responses uh, to the AIDS epidemic rather early on uh, was the question, can the state do anything uh, other than education and distribution of barrier contraceptives and things of that sort, can the state do anything using the law to impede the uh, transmission of HIV? And there are potentially two routes there in terms of using the law. One is tort law uh, to allow individuals who are infected sue the people who they claim infected them. Uh, That requires proving negligence or intentional actions and things of that sort. It's difficult to do. Uh, the other way is to try to use criminal law and to try to deter people using criminal law. Now, to what extent does criminal law deter people? Uh, and I'm not certain if someone who's HIV positive and who's going to insist on having sex with people without telling them is going to be deterred by the possibility that they might be apprehended someday and convicted under some statute and sent away to prison for a few years. Uh, I haven't seen any studies tending to show that states that have these criminal HIV statutes have a lower rate of HIV transmission than states that don't. And that would probably be a very difficult kind of study to do because, uh, you know, there are many different factors going into the HIV transmission rate in particular states uh, and having to do with demographics and culture and all kinds of stuff. So it might be difficult to prove whether these statutes are effective, but I know that there are very strong arguments being made that they're ineffective because they may deter people from getting tested. Yeah, it's sort of a disincentive because it's based right. on knowledge. Uh, if you don't know your, your yeah. status, then... Yes, because if you look at this Florida statute, it's, it says, it is unlawful for any person who has human immunodeficiency virus infection when such person knows he or she is infected with this disease and when such person has been informed that he or she may communicate this disease to another person through sexual intercourse to have sexual intercourse. Which presumably a, yeah. a doctor would be right. – so, so well, well, the usual thing, you yeah. get tested, and if you test positive, they're going to counsel you. Yeah. So that fulfills this. So people may be deterred, even if they suspect they might be positive. The theory goes, the argument goes, people might be deterred from being tested, and that the most effective way to cut down HIV transmission is probably to get people to know their HIV status and receive counseling about how to have sex safely. Well, well said. So, so, so let's so there go. Are strong arguments against these statutes, but the point is, how is this statute to be construed? Yeah, and, and let's let's go into the details of this case. So, here, the state files charges against uh, a gentleman, uh, DC, 
Uh, he's a gay, HIV-positive man, and they, they accuse him of violating these statutes. Um, and D.C. responds by filing a motion to dismiss, and he contends that the term, quote-unquote, sexual intercourse used in the statutes refers only to vaginal intercourse involving, as you might suspect, a man and a woman, and thus the statute does not apply to the activity for which he is charged. Right. So we'll get into the analysis of what the courts do here, but I – and this, this does go a little bit into where one of the decisions goes, but – would it make any sense from a legislative standpoint? Would it would it would it make any sense for a logical a group of logical legislators to get together, decide they want to do something about to reduce HIV transmission right. rates, enact this criminalization statute, which for better or for worse, leaving that aside, and decide that they're going to exempt sex between men? Well, I would say given the history of the HIV epidemic and who was getting infected and how HIV is transmitted, it would make no sense whatsoever. It was a loaded question. <laughs> I mean, I question. can't imagine deciding that that's the legislative intent right. of and a yet, statute. And yet, this is the odd thing. The Second District Court of Appeal in Florida thinks that that's the correct interpretation and of the statute. And I have to ask you, what is that all about? What is that all about? That is all about the idea that some people have that sexual intercourse – refers to potentially procreative sexual activity. And that sexual activity that isn't potentially procreative is not sexual intercourse. And this relates back to a, a sort of flip comment that I put into the article in, in Law Notes. Remember back in the 90s, uh, the Monica Lewinsky affair with President Clinton. And the allegation was that uh, the president had had oral sex with a, an intern. And well, he was he was confronted. You know, the question was, did you have sex with Monica Lewinsky? And he said, I did not have sex with that woman. And people were parsing that very closely. And the idea was, yes, the evidence was overwhelming that there was oral sex. But there are a lot of people out there who don't consider oral sex to be sex. Okay. Um, but Florida – I don't know the rules – if there's any unique rules of statutory construction in Florida. Well, the but rules of statutory construction <laughs> – Of course, art does. <laughs> According to, the court, okay. according to the court in this case, all right, they, and this case came up to the 5th District, what happened is D.C. moves to dismiss. The motion is granted by the trial judge mm -hmm. because at the time the only appellate authority in Florida was the 2nd District Court of Appeals decision from about two years ago in which they accepted such an argument and reversed the conviction. And, and is that premise on the idea that sexual intercourse, when it's not defined, it, it's used uniformly throughout all of the Florida statutes, meaning well, well, you could idea, imagine them meaning yeah. sexual intercourse to be more broad right. in this instance if than a another term, statute. If a term is not defined, then the question is how do you determine its meaning if it's not defined specifically in the statute? In a way that doesn't render the legislative judgment completely nonsensical. That's my answer. Well <laughs> – is well, that not right well, legally? Well, in this case, in this case, uh, <laughs> one judge agreed with me. Yeah. Well, in in this case, the fifth district court of appeals said, "Look, both parties in this case, both the state and the defendant, argue that the language is clear." And you have fun with that, which we're going to yes. get to in a second. And you know, how can it be clear if the parties attach different meanings to it? But at any rate, so they say, since both parties say it's clear, what we do is we apply the clear meaning rule which means we we give it the meaning that we think it has. Right. Because if it's got a clear meaning, it must be clear to the court, right? <laughs> Even though it wasn't clear to the second district, which took the opposite meaning. I mean, this is And inherently, the term sexual intercourse, because we could have a reasonable debate about what that includes, means it's right. not so clear, right? right. <laughs> Does it include oral sex? I mean, it, well, or se anal sex. Or anal sex. I mean, those yeah. are well, the, the thing is, the court doesn't specify what kind of sex right. this guy had. It, it's just that it was gay sex. 
And he said, by definition, gay sex isn't sexual intercourse. Uh, and wow. the court says, well, let's look at a dictionary. <laughs> well, a dictionary supposedly reflects common usages of words. It depends so, how old that dictionary is. So, well, this they took a look at four dictionaries. Yeah. The earliest was from the 1970s. The latest were very recent. These were hard copy dictionaries. They also looked online at two dictionary You gave them programs. a lot of credit for going online. Yeah, they, like. they really worked you know, to, to try to uh, bolster their opinion. That so anal they, and oral sex is included within the meaning of sexual intercourse as that term is used in American society today. And contemporary definitions are the most relevant because obviously a statute that specifically responds to HIV mm-hmm. was enacted relatively recently, Although, within the past 20, right, 30 right, years, okay. you know, within the current generations of English That's, a, that's a, just a circular so, way of saying – of looking at the context in which this statute was, right. was so enacted. We, so we shouldn't take a dictionary from the 1940s, definitely no. not. Uh, so, uh, so the court says, look, that's clear to us. And besides, if we look at the context, which the court says that they're not going to do, you know, we don't look at legislative history when we have clear, unambiguous language, but then they do. But they let's say, take a peek just in case. They say, well, you know, the, the legislature that passed this, what were they trying to do? They were trying to cut down on HIV transmission. Who were the main sources of HIV transmission in Florida at the time, that, at least as identified by epidemiologists? Gay men. And people from Haiti mm-hmm. and IV drug users and uh, blood transfusion recipients mm-hmm. or people who were using blood clotting, clotting medication that was made from pooled blood donation. They said, well, those are the people and, and the largest And just group. to be clear, I, I know you already said it, but just so our listeners yeah. don't miss it. This is based on a particular point in time according right. to – This uh, is based on epidemiological evidence. I wanted you to say it three times. Yes. <laughs> I can't Quickly. say it once. <laughs> right. Epidemiological evidence as of the time the statute right. was Things passed. Right. Things have changed, obviously. And the statute, uh, I don't think we're given the date here when it was passed, but it's probably an artifact of the 1980s or early 90s. Uh, so at the time, and in fact today, this is one of the sort of scary things about the direction the epidemic is going in the United States is that uh, gay men remain the largest group. And in fact, the uh, rate of HIV transmission among gay men is increasing. Especially among young gay men, as as I recall, recent The problem being that now people know about medications and they say, oh, it's not a fatal disease anymore. So if I really want to have sex without a condom, I can do it and I can always take the drugs afterwards. Well, that's not necessarily a a recipe for halting an epidemic. So at any rate, in this case, the court said, look, we think fifth district. We disagree with second district. We think the plain, clear meaning is that it's any kind of sexual activity involving the genitals of one person coming into contact with another person. And uh, so we remand this case for trial. But at the same time, we've got this problem now in Florida. We've got the second district taking one position, the fifth test district taking another. We've got a conflict. It's an important conflict to resolve. So they certify to the Florida Supreme Court the question of what sexual intercourse means. So, you know, I'm sure that uh, legal humorists will have fun with this, that the Florida Supreme Court is going to put their heads together and try to decide whether gay sex is sex. <laughs> All right. We're going to leave it there in that case. But before we, we do our segue to the next case, I do want to compliment you because you managed to get through the discussion of that case without using any of the terms that off, offline I asked you not to use. So thank you. Oh, now I'm no, supposed to do the don't, eight, don't the eight words to get us thrown <laughs> no, off the No, don't. Okay. okay. So we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a case out of Hong Kong recognizing marriage rights for a transgender woman. Stay with us. <music> so 
So we're back discussing the case of W v. Registrar of Marriages. This is a case out of Hong Kong. Uh, and it's before the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal, which, as you note, uh, or as Law Notes notes, is Hong Kong's highest court. And there they found that a transgender woman has a right to marry her male partner and that such marriage does not run counter to the Hong Kong statute requiring marriage to be, to be between one male and one female. Uh, and they, they ruled on the basis that the appellant, uh, W, is, is now legally female. So one note about terminology, the court uses the term transsexual throughout its opinion. Uh, this, as many people know, is an older term that's usually um, – that originated in medical psychological fields. Um, we're not sure how the, how the plaintiff here would prefer to be referred to, but you'll probably hear us using mostly the term transgender woman, um, although occasionally we may, we may slip into the court's vernacular because we're looking at lots of words on a page often when we're, we're talking. So – all right, I'm going to ask you what's going on with this case, and I usually ask that, but here we have a transgender woman who has undergone the sex reassignment surgery, and her identity cards and her passports have been updated to reflect that. So what's all the issue about her marrying a man? Well, after, after she went through uh, the gender reassignment, uh, she wanted to marry her boyfriend, and he wanted to marry her, and they wanted to get a license, and, but she was concerned she had her solicitor contact the relevant government office to ask, would there be a problem? And they said, well, for this purpose, your birth certificate governs. And in Hong Kong, we don't change the birth certificate when we do gender reassignment. So on the birth certificate, she's still listed as male. So this would be a same-sex marriage, and they don't have same-sex marriage in Hong Kong. And she wasn't suing in this case to establish the right of same-sex marriage in Hong Kong because she said, I'm a woman. She said, uh, my gender identity is female. That's why I went through the surgery, and that's why I got all my identity papers changed and everything else. I am female. My boyfriend is male. This is not a same-sex marriage. We should be entitled to get married. And uh, part of the evidence, part of the, part of the issue in this case uh, for the court is that Hong Kong was a British colony for a long, long, long time until uh, jurisdiction was ceded back to China. But it retains a certain degree of self-government autonomy. It has its own governing council and it has its own court system. It's not subject to the uh, Republic of China's courts. Uh, so uh, – the People's Republic of China, excuse me. The Republic of China is Taiwan, which is also part of China. But doesn't, let's You're not gonna get into that. You're going to slip into all – We're going to start a war here. So let's, let's just say that Hong Kong has its own court system. They have a court of final appeal and that their case law is derived from English case law. Mm-hmm. So the case they look at on this issue is Corbett v. Corbett, which is an old English case from uh, much earlier in the 20th century where the British courts took the position that uh, one's gender at birth uh, is as identified by the doctor, you know, anatomy, and it's usually – it's visual inspection. If, if a baby is born with male genitals, they're classified as male. And uh, – the court said that can't change. No matter what surgery you do, no matter what hormone treatments you do, no matter how you groom yourself and how you dress, how you present yourself, it's those genetics that govern what your true gender is as and, far as and, we're concerned. And, and, this was, and this, is a, this is a decision from rather early in the history of transgender law. I think it's, it's from 1970. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that, the, that the, the issue got to the highest court in England so early. Uh, because it was before a lot of uh, public education, a lot of knowledge about uh, the phenomenon of gender identity. Uh, and, I mean, today we have a situation in the United States, for example, where many states now, uh, 
forbid discrimination based on gender identity, where just about everywhere you can get new identity papers without a big fuss. In fact, even in Hong Kong, you can get new identity papers. You have to present evidence of gender reassignment. Uh, there are disputes about how much surgery needs to be done or should be required or should it just be based on a person's psychological gender identity, uh, all kinds of issues here. But in this case, uh, the Corbett case, that old English case, took the position that uh, reproductive capacity was an essential element of uh, gender for purposes of marriage. We're sort of back where we started this podcast yeah. in some way. I didn't realize yeah. that. In some here ways, we go again right, about here, what here, the meaning here of... Here we go again <laughs> of sex is. Yeah. Because here they say uh, in order to have a valid marriage, it must be capable of being consummated between the parties. And as far as the court was concerned, consummating a marriage requires a penis inserted into a vagina with the potential for reproduction. Uh, but that, of course, is ridiculous because well, we allow elderly people who are incapable of reproductive or, results. Or people who are infertile. Who are infertile. And, and the court notes this, right. the current court right. in the Hong court. Kong notes So this. the court says, look, Corbett's view is sort of out of date. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't accord with the reality of marriage today. Furthermore, they pointed out, uh, as a result of the surgery, uh, this couple can have vaginal intercourse. It's, it's not going to result in a kid, but they can have it. She has a vagina as a result of the surgery. He can insert his penis. They can have sex. They can have wild, delirious sex if they want to. It's just, you know, and, and probably they can have sex without fear of, of, uh, of conception. So they don't have to use birth control, although, you know, they might want to use birth control for other reasons, you know. Uh, but... It, it seems to me here that the court is taking a very modern view. They're saying, what is the reality of marriage today? And let's consider the equality issue here because the, uh, the governing uh, charter in Hong Kong, which is separate from the, from the constitution of the People's Republic of China. You know, Hong Kong was allowed autonomy, and they have an equal protection requirement in the charter. They said, let's look at this situation here. As a result of this surgery... This person cannot perform sexually as a male any longer. Penis is gone, okay? And they can perform as a woman, but can't conceive. But in terms of having sex, the only, you know, sexual intercourse here of a different sex type, that is, between people of different genders, uh, the issue is that in the Hong Kong Charter, there's also a right to marry, and they say, this person is being deprived of her right to marry if you require that she be able to engage in procreative sex because she can't engage in procreative sex with she, anybody. She would be, in, in, for lack of a better term, neither here nor there in right. terms of her ability to meet the requirements right. of right. what she, – so she, she wouldn't be able to marry right. anyone. She, she yeah. can't marry a woman mm -hmm. because under uh, Hong Kong's law, there's no same-sex marriage. And she can't marry a man because under Hong Kong's law, she can't procreate. So the court says – we can't see an interpretation of the law here that absolutely deprives her of any possibility of marrying anybody. She has to be able to marry someone. And if our law is that only different sex marriage is allowed, she has to be able to marry a man. Could you um, – that, that's a great summary and this may be overreading it, but 
Um, are they yeah. open to... Well, are there... Hint- I mean, what your writer sort of, for this note, sort of hints at that maybe there's some logic there that suggests perhaps a little bit of openness to the marriage equality argument, even though that wasn't well, the one they, being made here? They were very careful to disclaim that they were dealing with that issue. Mm-hmm. I think they, they were afraid of this being characterized as a, a same-sex marriage case. They're not ready to go there yet. Uh, we don't have same-sex marriage anywhere in, in Asia at this point. So, uh, you know, they're, they're concerned. They're, they're, you know, there are developments bubbling up in various places. In India, there's a possibility of some receptivity to, to same-sex marriage down the line. Also in, uh, in uh, I think, Thailand, there's a possibility. But, but so far, we haven't gotten there. Interesting. All right, so let's uh, great job as usual, Art, in distilling that. Uh, let's leave it there for that case. Um, we're going to take another short break. When we return, we'll be discussing our final case. Uh, it's a case out of Ohio in which the Iowa Supreme Court has ordered the health department to list case the, out of Iowa, not Ohio. Iowa. Did I say Ohio? Yeah, I definitely meant Iowa. Of Iowa. Ohio I, I, I wrote about this yes. this case. Yes. Sorry. Can I do, go do, ahead? Can I start again? It's a case out of Iowa. Thank you for correcting me. Ordering the health department to list the name of the non-birthing mother on a birth certificate for the married for a married lesbian couple's child. There's a lot of descriptions there, but essentially it's a married lesbian couple had a child. And as you'll hear, they didn't allow the non-birthing mother's name to appear in the birth certificate. Stay with us. Okay, so we're back discussing the case of Gartner v. Iowa Department of Public Health, uh, as described flawlessly in the transition to this <laughs> segment. <laughs> it's out of Iowa. Um, and this is, this is a, a, a great decision that's uh, – well, actually we'll discuss how great it is. But uh, a decision uh, ordering the Public Health Department to issue a birth certificate listing the non-biological mother uh, as one of the parents of a child born to a married lesbian couple during their marriage um, – as, as our listeners know, Iowa is a marriage equality uh, jurisdiction. And here, um, here the couple, couple Melissa and uh, Heather, were married. They, they already had one child uh, conceived through on, anonymous donor insemination. Um, and they, during, when they got married after marriage equality, um, one of the mo- mothers was already six months pregnant. So they had the child. And they go to the health department and they say, you know, give us our birth certificate. And the health department comes back and says, here's your birth certificate. And it lists uh, for the child, Mackenzie, it lists only um, only the birthing mother on the birth certificate. Heather. Heather. Yeah. So Heather and, and, and Melissa write to the health department and say, no, 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 we want, a health, we want a certificate that lists us both as the parents, which we are. And the health department turns around and what do you think they say, Art? What do you think they say? They say no. Well, <laughs> we wouldn't have a case. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you need, you need the uh, historical and political background here. And the historical and political background is that in 2009, the Iowa Supreme Court unanimously ruled in Varnum versus Bryan that same-sex couples have a right to marry under the Iowa Constitution. Shortly after that opinion was issued, there was an election, and the Democratic governor was replaced by a Republican governor who did not like that decision. And also the Republicans won a majority in one house of the Iowa legislature. So the Republicans in the legislature are trying to move to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot to overrule the Varnum decision. And the governor and his appointees, his department heads, are hostile to the Varnum decision. So they want to restrict its operation in every way they can. And one way they saw to restrict its operation was to say if a married lesbian couple has a kid, 
the non-birth parent has to go through the adoption procedure, just like she had to before. There was is this actually a law that says that, or it's a this their interpretation, or it's just their interpretation. interpretation. Their, okay. interpre- their interpretation is that the only name we put on a birth certificate are the mother and father, and for a second mother, in place of a father, on the birth certificate. I mean, Iowa had their law had evolved to this point prior to the Varnum decision where a same-sex co-parent could be put on a a birth certificate if she adopted the child, her partner's child. So, I mean, Iowa was not exactly back in in the boondocks as far as gay family law goes. They had developed this point. They had... uh, And this couple, in fact, went through that process when they had their first child and there was no marriage equality, obviously. And and they they pointed out it was an expensive and time-consuming and intrusive process. They had to open up their home to a home study and, you know, have a stranger coming in and evaluating them as parents and all this kind of stuff. So uh, they said, we shouldn't have to go through that again. We're married now. Isn't there a presumption that a child born to a married woman is also the child, the legal child of her spouse. And the position of the state was, well, that's sort of odd. I mean, the the presumption sort of tracks nature. You assume that the husband is the father of the wife's child. Even but though we know that that's even though we know that's not always the case, not true uh, because uh, because of adultery oh, or or donor insemination, <laughs> you know, there could be various reasons why it's untrue. But but the point is, it's not necessarily true. Uh, but the law, uh, maybe it's about keeping the peace and about having a sort of certainty and making well, sure well, court, about responsibility. Well, that, that's a good segue. That, responsibility that that the law presumes that the spouse of a woman who gives birth to a child is the child's parent. And the question is, should that presumption carry over in situations where the married couple are two women? Well, and you just started to lay out what became, you know, very important to the court's analysis, which is what 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 is the rationale behind this presumption of parentage to begin with? And much of it has to do right. with things like the certainty of the family, financial financial stability of the child, so that, right. that they know who is responsible for caring for them, uh, reinforcing the familial unit, all these sorts of things. Right. And this court, we're going to get the difference between the appellate court and the trial court, which right. we'll talk about in a second. This court, the 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 highest court, um, says, wait a second. When you start looking at all the rationales for this presumption of parentage, it's no different for a lesbian married couple than it would be for an opposite-sex married couple. All the same reasons that you would want to have this presumption apply on behalf of the child, which it's openly for the child, right? And and I think the court – and this is an important point. When it comes to the constitutional question, the court looks at it from the perspective of the child because they should – because, in fact, what we're concerned with in every case that involves anything having to do with children and their relationship with parents, we should be looking at the best interest of the child ultimately. And it's in the best interest of a child to have two parents rather than one. And in this case, as the court notes, there's really no – when you're talking about an anonymous donor, you're not going to have the prospect of someone emerging to claim that they are – the biological father who should be right. listed on the certificate. So a lot of the the concerns that were articulated by opponents of this, obviously, on the other side, by the health department, when you start appealing them, they sort of don't make a ton of sense given the circumstances. Yeah. But when you look at the at the political background, it's uh, it's a uh, no. But our right. courts never right. our courts never make decisions. Oh, with they any never of the make political decisions context. based on politics. Well, no. 
And, and that's why we'll explain the concurring you know, that's why and I abstaining want to get to that. judge. And that's why I but, talked about – hold on at the beginning right. about whether it's really a good decision. There's, yeah. The part I'm talking well, about is the part we'll get to in but a second. But there's also the, the complication. As you point out, the trial court and the Supreme Court take different approaches. The, yeah. the trial court says, well, why don't we just give a gender-neutral interpretation to the law governing the presumption? Because the parent. presumption statute here uses the terms like husband and and, oh. and, and wife and male and female. There's, right. there's gender – Gender differences in the, well, in the words. Well, and, and, and what we've seen in some states, certainly in, in California and a lot of the family law decisions, they've said uh, that in, in line with the Uniform Parentage Act, we're going to treat nouns as gender neutral, even if they're written as male or female. We'll treat them as gender neutral for purposes of our family law to avoid discrimination and to uh, extend the same rules of family law to same-sex couples. Uh, the court here says, well, under our Iowa a statutory construction uh, jurisprudence, we can only use gender-neutral language if the legislature did not use both genders, yeah, did right. not specify. When they use masculine and feminine terms together, you can't just decide that they're going to be read gender-neutral. Right. That, this is this is the view of the Supreme Court. I mean, the trial court had said, let's do gender-neutral here so we don't have to deal with the constitutional issue uh, because one, one uh, approach that many courts use is if we can resolve the case satisfactorily through statutory interpretation and avoid having to make a constitutional judgment, we'll do so. Uh, but the Supreme Court says we can't. We have to make a constitutional judgment. So we have to decide, is it an equal protection violation to refuse to apply the presumption of uh, parental status in this case? And they say it does violate equal protection here because there's no rational basis for doing so. I mean, when you, you look at the reasons that the state gives for why we have the presumption uh, for, uh, for a husband to be considered the, the parent, the same reasons apply, especially when you look at it from the perspective of the child, that it's in the child's interest to have someone identified at birth as their second parent with responsibility for them. It's, it's uh, important for record-keeping. I mean, the, uh, the state was talking about vital statistics. We want to have accurate vital statistics. And so... Uh, the Supreme Court says, well, you know, why why is it inaccurate to list the same-sex spouse? Well, and it also says, that, you know, this, the, the health department had articulated an efficiency argument, and they right. said, well, actually, it would be much more efficient to just list both parents from the beginning and then to force right. one of them to, you know, force to them to go through an adoption process and then and, add it and, later. And the adoption proceeding delays the child having two parents. And at a time when the child is most vulnerable, right after birth. So as Art mentioned, they ultimately do reach the constitutional issue, at least the equal protection part. They don't reach due process arguments right. that were also made. This was a case, another great case brought by Lambda Legal. It's worth right. noting. So it results in a great a great ruling and, uh, you know, to walk back what I was talking about before, a great decision. But the part I was talking about that concerns me, I mean, maybe it's just yeah. rhetoric, so it shouldn't concern me. But Art, it's, it's not only the concurrence, which I want you to talk about, but also a paragraph in the main right. opinion, uh, which it revolves around the level of you know, happiness or unhappiness or wanting to appear not so happy with the Varnum decision okay. on the so, part of these justices. So, so here we have to mention the Varnum decision was unanimous. And uh, a few years after the Varnum decision, uh, the next year after the Varnum decision, uh, three of the members of the Supreme Court were up for retention elections. And in the entire history of Iowa, no Supreme Court justice had ever been turned out as a result of a retention election. They'd always been reelected. But uh, opponents of the marriage decision, uh, fueled by out-of-state money from the National Organization for Marriage, uh, 
managed to get all three of the judges who were up defeated for retention, which meant that the Republican governor had a chance to appoint new judges. And the new judges who he appointed, uh, well, two of them said, uh, we concur with the result in this case because none of the parties are arguing that the Varnum decision was incorrect. So if Varnum is the law... If Varnum is the law. If Varnum is the law, then this is a correct decision. The third just recused, didn't participate in the case, and didn't explain why. Uh, And the majority said none of the parties has raised or argued to us the issue of whether Varnum was correctly decided, so so we're not addressing that. That all seemed to me... And I'm I'm wondering wondering why the health department didn't didn't take the additional step of trying to argue the, that Varnum was wrongly decided. I guess that's one question. Well, probably because they were only able to replace three of the judges. So they knew seven. they didn't have a majority. Right. But the second is to, to Garner to – oh, sorry. I didn't mean to do as a play on the – oh, this is Gartner, not yeah. Garner. <laughs> to Garner the support of to have a unanimous right. ruling. The majority actually had to include this language that I thought – it struck me when they said – you know, since nobody's arguing about – in this case is arguing about Vardam, is this an invitation to, for someone to bring that case? Is it a bone that they're throwing to the necessarily. justices? And, and I think the nice sign is uh, whatever you might make about that original retention election in 2010, another one of the judges from the Varnum uh, court was up for retention in 2012. And you know what? He won. Mm-hmm. And I think this shows that the people of Iowa – have moved ahead of the local GOP. I mean, the state Republican Party officially still wants to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot to overrule the Varnum decision, but the people of Iowa are not ready to toss out the judge. All right, good. Then less less to be concerned about there. I just found it very striking. So we're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, Art, we're going to conclude with a very short of of note sec- right. segment because we're, we're talking too much. we got to finish this podcast. Look at yeah. that. It's 40 minutes already. Stay with us just a little bit longer. All right, we're back to close the podcast. All right, take it away. The National Organization for Marriage does not want you or anyone to know <laughs> who donates the money that they use to battle against same-sex marriage, and they just relitigate this and relitigate this and relitigate this. And on May thirtieth, two 2013, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court said to them, hey, guys, answer those subpoenas. The state uh, election people are investigating whether you know they violated Maine law by not disclosing the identity of their donors when the last time they put up the constitutional amendment in Maine. Uh, and so the, the Supreme Judicial Court said, look, the First Circuit has told you this. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has denied your cert petitions. It's time, guys. <laughs> Give over the names of those donors. Oh, what a world. All right, that's the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at LE hyphen gal.org this and future podcasts can be found online in itunes or at legal.podbean.com and if you haven't done it already give us some stars on itunes you can follow us on twitter at legal.org or find us on facebook using search terms that will find us i'm sure all right that's all the time we have thanks for listening <laughs>